Take out your Bibles this morning, opening to the Gospel of John once again. John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. John chapter 1. I'll begin reading this morning in verse 1, so we can read the entirety of the prologue, but our focus this morning is verses 12 and 13. John chapter 1. Listen to the Gospel writer. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. and He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the truth about Jesus Christ. And even as John writes to us in this gospel that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, so too that is our prayer for our own hearts. That this day, for any who might be outside the family of Christ, who have not yet repented of their sins and professed faith in Jesus Christ, Father, would you do what only you can do and overcome, conquer that heart. Give them a heart to believe Jesus is the Christ and to live in the fullness of that. For those who are here this morning who are believers, Father, we pray that you would continue to grow and enrich that heart for Christ you've given to us. May he continue to become bigger and more majestic and more beautiful to more truly reflect who he is. And let us leave here today, Father, with a renewed passion, desire, love, and joy in Jesus Christ that we might please him and walk with him this day in this week. Father, meet with us during this time together. Show us Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, our focus this morning is verses 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I want to begin this morning with a quote. A quote that comes from an old theologian, he's still alive today, named J.I. Packer. He's the author of Knowing God, uh, that great 
Christian classic. J.I. Packer says this, We live at a time when uncertainty as to what constitutes true religion, and what he means by true religion is genuine Christianity. He says, We live at a time when uncertainty as to what constitutes true religion is more widespread perhaps than at any time since Christianity was born. What did he just say? This generation that we live in today is more confused about what the, what the gospel is and about what true Christianity is than any generation in the history of Christianity. Now, coming from the lips of almost anybody else, that would be hyperbole, right? You, you make some extreme statement, but this comes from the lips of a man who knows the gospel, who knows God, who knows church history. J.I. Packer says, this generation, this day we live in, is more uncertain about what true Christianity is than any generation in the history of Christianity. Now in our flesh, we want to push back against that. But beloved, we can't. I believe Packer's correct. We live in a day today where today's version of the gospel is completely flipped upside down. We live in a world today where the gospel is all about man. It's about man's needs, man's hurts, man's struggles, man's unhappiness, man's discomforts in a turbulent world. And the gospel comes in and will make man happy, comfortable, healthy, whole, whatever your problem is, the gospel will fix it. Just receive it. Just, just accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior and everything gets better. It's all about you. And for that matter, when a soul does, to use the language of the day, accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, it really only focuses upon the Savior part. I don't want to go to hell when I die. I don't really care about anything else, but I sure don't want to go to hell when I die. So, so I'll accept him as my Savior, and then we'll ignore his lordship, his, his sovereignty, his rule, his kingdom over his people. Two great crimes evangelism commits today. Number one, shrinking God down to man's size so that now we can talk about man on equal par as God. And number two, taking salvation out of God's hands, putting it in man's. The true great crimes of evangelism today. And these things speak to exactly what J.I. Packer says. We live in a day today that is more uncertain, more ignorant, other people say, about true Christianity than any other day in Christian religion. Well, John's gospel is the remedy. John's gospel is writing so that we might believe Jesus is the Christ. And my purpose this morning in preaching this passage in verses 12, and through, 12 through 13, I think it's John's purpose for writing verses 12 and 13 to show you salvation is of God. Salvation is a miracle that God does. Salvation is a supernatural act that man has no power to do. The gospel is all about God. It's about who he is. It's about what he has done and about his omnipotent power. 
to change a soul. John's purpose in verses 12 and 13 is to strip every one of us of all of those preconceived spiritual ideas we have of ourselves. We live in a day-to-day, and this, is gonna, this may be hard for some, we live in a day-to-day where we talk about our rights, our inalienable rights. Beloved, there's only one who has any rights, and it's the uncreated creator. He has all rights. We were created by him and for him to know him, love him, serve him, walk with him, worship him. Our rights are to honor God. The only one who has rights in and of himself is God himself. And this passage in verses 12 through 13, John is helping us to understand we don't have rights. We don't have abilities. We don't near have the authority we think we do. All authority, all power, all rights belong to God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the salvation of a soul is not because of man, it's because of God in omnipotent power accomplishing what John's later going to call in John chapter 3, a new birth, born again. One of the great lies of the dark world that we live in today, and again, this goes back to last week's message, right? We dwell in darkness. We love the darkness. We hate the light. One of the great lies of the darkness is we think the world is about us, and we think we're in control, and we think we have rights, and we think we have authority, and we think we can do whatever we want to do. And we'll take passages like, Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and we'll make that all about us. I can do anything. Well, that is what that passage says, but you got to go back to the verses right before that to understand what John mean, or what Paul means. He means you can do any of those things he's talking about before that. You can do any of those things through Christ who strengthens me. Doesn't mean you can do whatever you want to do. We don't have that power. So many things in life. They're not up to us. Scripture says God is sovereign. He numbers our days. So many things about our lives, and this is hard for us to swallow. It's hard for me to swallow, are predetermined about us. But we live day by day almost with blinders on, ignoring those things. And this is particularly true, John says, when it comes to believing. Believing that Jesus is the Christ. The power to do that. Is not in us. It comes from God. John told us last week, just by way of review, very quickly in verses 9 through 11, right before the passage we're looking at this morning, the true light, which is what? Jesus Christ. The true light, which enlightens everyone, here's the shocking part, was coming into the world. And when Jesus Christ, the true light, who enlightens everyone about God, he was, what happened when he came into the world? He goes on to say in verse 10, he was in the world and the world existed because of him. It was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus of Nazareth came into the world. Eternal God, pre-existent God came into the world. And all of his beauty, majesty, holiness. And what happened? The world rejected the creator. The world rejected God. Why? 
John answers that for us. We saw last week in chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 19. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light. Why? Because they're evil. Their works are evil. Their hearts are evil. And so when the light comes in and exposes their evil, exposes their sin, what do they do? Get the light out of here. I love darkness. I love my sin. John goes on to write, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his works be exposed. And what John says there is what Paul tells us in the book of Romans, throughout the New Testament, that is a universal reality for all men, all women, all children. Every one of us by nature love darkness. Why? Because our hearts are darkened. Our hearts are evil. To use other biblical metaphors in the New Testament, our hearts are blind toward God, deaf toward God, dead toward God. Ever since the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, we are by nature enemies and haters of God. That's just the testimony of Scripture. It's the spiritual condition of every human being, every one of us. It's passed down to every generation And that's the explanation of why the true light came into the world and the world didn't know him. The world rejected him. Why? They love their sin. They love wickedness. They hate God. And that's the true nature of every man. This is part of what J.I. Packer says. We live in a day today that's more ignorant of true Christianity than any generation before us. How often do we hear that portrayal of man? We don't. That's who I am, in and of myself. Strip myself bare. You look into the heart of Jake Cooper. On the outside, I don't know what you see. I hope it's a generally a pretty decent guy, a God-honoring guy, the image of Christ. But on the inside, my core, just me, apart from Christ, you're going to find wickedness, evil, on par with the worst murderers who've ever lived. That's who I am. That's who you are. But by the glory of God, that's not where the book of John ends at verses 10 and 11. It continues on. Look at verse 12. It would be a terrible place to end the book there, wouldn't it? (laughs) That's who we are. Verse 12, here's the good news of the gospel. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the good news of the gospel. Here's the good news. Against this backdrop of there is none good, no not one, we're all evil, we all hate God, we all dwell in darkness. That's the backdrop. Here's the good news that comes in. There is gospel hope. There are some who are not God haters. Here's the crucial question. Here's here's the question we've got to ask. We can't rush through this. If verses 11 and 12 lay out for us, this is what every human being is. We dwell in darkness. We're God-haters. We want the light gone because we love our sin. We love evil. How does somebody get from there to what we read in verses 12 and 13? But to those who receive. If we are all God-haters, how does a soul get from hating God and loving sin to what we read in verse 12 and 13? Loving God and hating sin. How does that happen? How does one get there? That's the title of the message this morning. How does 
do lovers of sin become lovers of Christ? And that's what verse 13 is all about. That's what verse 13 answers for us. It reveals to us the very radical transformation, the radical surgery that God does upon certain souls, certain hearts, to bring a soul out of love for sin, hatred of God, to hatred of sin and love for God. It's a radical work of God, a supernatural work that nothing else can imitate. It cannot be accomplished any other way. No matter how good you are, no matter how religious you are, no matter how moral you are, you can't change the condition of your heart. You are who you are. I am who I am. And the only thing that can change me is God. Notice the biblical metaphor here. John is using to take salvation out of the hands of man and put it in the hands of God. Verse 12, or excuse me, verse 13. Go back to verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, verse 13, who were born. Now he's setting a theme here, a theme of birth. What do we know about birth? Let's just think about why is he using this metaphor? There's a couple things here. How does one get born? How does it get initiated? Let me ask you these questions, and you can kind of tell me the answer to this. You, you, all right, so let's, let's ask Gage here, okay? You were born, right? Was there a time before you were born? There was. Yes, there was, okay? In that time, did your mom and dad come to you while you were not here, like before you were born, and say, hey, Gage, do you want to live? Do you want to do you want to come and, and what do you want your birthday to be? And do you want to be boy or girl? And and, and did, did did that ever happen? No, it did. I said thank you for saying that. It did not happen. It did not happen, right? So so when it comes to physical birth, it's out of the children's hands. All right, let me ask you moms here. All right, so you moms, did you decide, you know, I think I want to have a baby? And did you will it to happen? Did you just kind of, did you squeeze your palms tightly? And I mean, we're, we're G-rated in here. Did you just, did you will it to happen? And it just, and, and, and not only do I want to have a baby, I want it to be on this date because it's an important date to me and just really going to set. Is that how it happened, ladies? Okay, so it was out of your hands. And, and let me ask this question, um, because while we all adore our children, um, did anyone find out you were pregnant and in your heart of hearts you were thinking, I don't want to be pregnant? Did that ever happen? Like, it, it may not that you never wanted to be, but at least at this frame of season in life, I didn't want it. Or did you find out you had twins and you were thinking, I didn't really want twins? <laughs> did you sign up for that? Did you? No. Did, moms, did, did, was that your work? That was handed to you, right? What about dads? All right, we like to be in control of things, right? We're the head of our homes. Did you just tell your wife, hey, hey, we're going to have a baby? And it's going to be on this date, this time, and, and you're going to give birth. And this, did that happen, dads? No, most of us were like, whoa, what? <laughs> they bring a little stick to us with a plus on it, you know, we're like, what? <laughs> this is why John is using this imagery, who was born. He's helping us to understand, even when it comes to physical birth, we have no say-so. It's not men, women, or children who decide to be born. This is the work of God. God determines, God decides. In the book of Psalms, it says God determines our days, meaning he knows when we're born, 
He knows how we're born. He knows how long we're going to live. Not just that he knows it because he looked into the future, but because he's God and we belong to him. He has right to call the shots over our lives. So John is using this metaphor of physical birth, which by our own experiences, we, we admit, that's not in our hands. The birth of a life is completely the work of God. And just as it's God, not man, who initiates the conception and birth of a baby, now John says, same thing when it comes to the birth of a soul out of darkness into light. It is not the work of man. It is the work of God. Just as miraculous as the work of God in physical birth, so too in the new birth. When a baby is born, it's out of our hands. And likewise, spiritually. Verse 4 of John 1 says, Jesus is the giver of life. And we said then, that's physical life, but it's also spiritual life. Jesus is the giver. If he doesn't give life, there won't be a baby. If he doesn't give spiritual life, that life will continue to live in darkness. There will not be a believer. If Jesus, the life and the light, does not give life to a soul so what verses 12 and 13 do is they tell us clearly what has to happen in order for a soul that loves darkness loves sin loves wickedness hates god to now all of a sudden hate sin hate what it once loved and love what it once hated namely being god what has to happen god has to happen so as we look at this passage very quickly, the point of verse 13 is to tell us three things. He's explaining how it happens. He gives us three reasons why it, not why it happens. And then he gives us the one reason why it does happen. So that's going to be the four points of the message this morning. The three, here's not why it happens. One, two, three. And then fourthly, here's why it does happen. How does a soul go from dark to light? It's not by this way. Number one, people do not become children of God because of their human pedigree. Now, stay with me. Verse 13 says, who were born not of blood. All right, that's that phrase we're thinking about right now. The majority of scholars understand this has to do with one's ancestry. The Jews of John's day would have been very proud of their heritage. In fact, John, or excuse me, Paul, in, when he's writing Philippians, he's talking about his credentials spiritually. At one point, he says, I was Jew among Jews, meaning I've got the heritage, but even among the Jews, the people of God, I was like the pinnacle of them all. Jew among Jews, Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. In John the Baptist's days, when John the Baptist came onto the scene and he was preaching a message of repentance, how did the Jews respond? Whoa, 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 what? What are we we're, the, we're children of Abraham. They were embracing their heritage, right? Their ancestry. We're Jews. Remember, God called our parents out of Egypt, the whole Red Sea thing, the Mount Sinai thing, the, the, uh, uh, the promised land thing. That, that's, that's our bloodline. We are the people of God. And John says to those very people that but they are not the true people of God. 
They're not the true people. Just because they have Jewish blood running through their veins doesn't mean they have entrance into the promised land, the new promised land, the true promised land, the new covenant promised land, heaven, where God is. It was not their heritage that brought them new life. Now, as we look around the room this morning, I don't know everyone's DNA, but most of us will fall into the category of Gentiles. You got Jews and everything that's not Jew is Gentile in the Bible. Most of us are Gentiles. But beyond that, some of us have wonderful spiritual heritage. We've grown up in families. Now, this is not true of everybody. Some of us have grown up in families where there was you were taken to church early in life to your earliest fondest memories. You can't remember not being in church growing up. Now, that's not everyone's experience. And by God's grace, be encouraged by this passage if that was not your experience. Because just because somebody grows up in church, while it's a great thing, you're not behind because you didn't. Salvation is the work of God in spite of our spiritual heritage. It doesn't matter what one's spiritual heritage is. It does not factor into the new birth. You could go back, we, uh, DNA tests are a big thing today. I think I saw you can go on Amazon and actually order a test and send it in and it'll tell you who you belong to. So let's just play on that for a minute. You could go and order one of those tests and do your DNA, send it in, come back, and it could tell you you are in the, the family of Jonathan Edwards. You, it could tell you that you were Jonathan Edwards, great, 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 great grandson or granddaughter. Or John Calvin or Martin Luther or, or go, you pick. You pick your favorite spiritual hero of the past. And it is completely inconsequential. It matters not who our family bloodline is. Now, let me say this for just a minute. Because what John is not saying here, he's not saying it doesn't matter how we raise our families. He's not saying it's not a good thing, fathers, to raise up your children in the wisdom and admonition of the Lord. Mothers, to nurture your children, to, to demonstrate a Christ-likeness to them. Parents, it's, he's not saying it's, a, it's not a good thing to make sure your children are in a, a Bible-believing church growing up. That, that God uses that as a means of grace to lay a foundation. That is a good thing. But what he is saying is no one is born again because they have a religious past or because they have a grandmother or grandfather who was super spiritual or a, a parent who was a preacher. No, John, or John wants us to see how does one go from darkness to light? It has nothing to do with your pedigree, with your ancestry, how religious it was, your past. It has nothing to do with that. Number two, he says people do not become children of God by human appointment. Now I'm fast forwarding just a little bit. We're going to come back. There's three things here. We're going to come back to the middle one. Look at verse 13. Who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, we're going to come back to that one, nor of the will of man. That's what we're focusing upon here. People do not become children of God by human appointment. So in the first point, not of blood, John is attacking the Jewish idea of heritage and lineage. You got Jewish blood running through your veins. No, it doesn't matter your past. The idea here is when it comes to not of the will of man, in John's day, there was the idea of patriarchy, which meant the father's the head of the home, the husband's the head of the home, which is a biblical concept. And taken to an extreme, almost a sinful extreme, 
the father would take on pridefully an authority that says he calls the shots, right? We see that abuse of power in our own day. Biblically, the husband is the head of the home, but sinfully, that can become an abuse of power. And that was happening in John's day. And you would have things like, even if a father got upset with his child, would order that the child be murdered, right? We saw that in our study of the book of Revelation. When a child turned to Christ, betrayed their heritage, they, were, they lost everything, even their family. Their, their parents would hunt them down and have them killed. That was how serious it was. And a father had the authority in this day, a sinful, taking to an extreme authority to give the order. I want this one to die, then that one died. I'll allow them to live, then he lived. Whatever the, the head of the home voiced as the authority, that was what happened. And John is simply saying here, no one is born again by appointment, meaning by a father telling the children, be born again. Be, be Repent of your sins today, be born again. Now there are religions, if that sounds strange to you, there are religions where that is the protocol. Islam is one where, as a child, you are forced into it. No one is forced into the kingdom of God. So not of our pedigree, not of, by a human appointment. He goes on to say, back in verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. So people do not become children of God by their pedigree, by human appointment. Number three, by an act of their own flesh. They do not become children of God by an act of their own flesh. Brother, do you see in the text where John is inspired by God saying that? It is not by an act of their own flesh, their own will. We live in a day-to-day, not to be repetitive, where we think we have control over so much. We think we call the shots. We jokingly said a moment ago about how even in the birth of a child, somebody who maybe wasn't expecting to give birth found out they were. You, the flip side of that is true also. There are mothers who desperately, or women who desperately want to be mothers. And if they could, if they could act in their own flesh to make it happen, they would do anything, right? We know people like this, maybe some in this room. We know the pain and agony of a woman who wants to be a mother, but biologically cannot. And even that is a reminder, we are not in control. We like to think we are. We wish we were, but we're not. And John is using that very thing to say, and what's true of that is also true of the new birth. How one goes from darkness to light is not an act of your will, not a determination of your flesh. It's not a decision you make. Why? Because you live in darkness. You love darkness. What will your decision always be? Evil, wickedness, darkness. 
It's who we are. The only act of the will that lives in darkness will be darkness. John is wanting us to see and grab this. And he's removing any human attempt to bring about the new birth. Anything that might put man in the center. Anything that might rob God of the glory he is due for being the one and only one who by mercy and grace and power changes a heart. Anything that might rob him of what he is due. John here is saying it's not of that. Not of blood. Not of the, the will of the flesh. It's, it's not of the will of man. But here's our fourth, fourth point. It is of God. Number four. You do become children of God. By an act of God. You see there in verse 13. He could not be clearer. Not of blood. Not of the will of the flesh. Not of the will of man. But this one thing. Of God. God is the one who performs a miraculous work of grace upon a heart that loves darkness, that hates light, that loves sin, that loves wickedness, and that is me, and that is you. Apart from Christ, that's who we are. It is God who performs a work of grace upon that, art, uh, that heart. And in Acts theologically, we call this word, we call this regeneration. It's not as important that you know that word as much as you understand God, this is the work of God. He gets the glory from it. What John is telling us here in verse 13 is exactly what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9, verse 16. So then it depends, and he's talking about salvation here. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. Sounds just like John, doesn't it? It's not the will of the flesh. It's not the actions of men. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's all of Him. God Himself acts upon a soul and brings about the very things that He says are necessary for a soul to be saved. What are those things? Repentance and faith. Where do those things fit into the gospel call of God? Because please don't hear me in this message or hear John in any way undermining that you must repent and you must profess faith in Jesus Christ. Those are biblical realities that the gospel call calls us to. We must do those things. But what John is telling us, how does a soul who doesn't want to repent, who loves darkness, loves sin, loves his lust, loves his pride, loves his self-centeredness, loves everything more than God, how in the world does that soul repent before God, forsake all those things he loves, and says, I love God, I want him, and I hate those things now. That's what repentance is. It's person-oriented. How does a soul do that, repent and profess faith in Jesus Christ? Well, before that can happen, John says... You must be born again. God must give a heart. Take out the heart that doesn't 
want those things and give you a heart that does. So this does not undermine repentance and faith. It shows how an individual repents and professes faith in Jesus Christ. Here's the great problem. Even, and I felt the tug of it even as I was studying it this week. You read about the darkness in verses 9, 10, and 11. And then you get to verse 12. Let me get back to John 1. You get, you get back to verse 12, and you almost puff your chest out. So you got the darkness in 9, 10, and 11, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Yep, that's me. I did that. I've repented. I profess faith. And do you see how that is the opposite of what John is trying to do here? I think American Christianity is such that we read verse 12 and we automatically think, man, I'm good. Because there is darkness, but I'm not counted among those anymore. I did good. Right? Tell me, if, if, am I wrong on that? That's how we generally read that. And we kind of feel like that's a normal transition. Darkness, but to those who did receive him, and we kind of move past it, kind of like, that's normal. That's not what John intends. Verses 9, 10, and 11 is a universal problem, and when you come to verse 12, you ought to be shocked. You ought to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Verse 12 can't be because of what he just said in verses 9, 10, and 11. The true light came into the world, which enlightens every man, And the world rejected him, didn't want him. He came to his own people, and his own people rejected him. That's a universal problem. And then you get to verse 12, and you're like, but for those who did receive him, you automatically ought to be shocked and say, that can't be. That cannot happen. How do you explain this, John? To which he says, glad you asked. Keep reading into verse 13. It wasn't wasn't blood. It wasn't the will of the flesh. It wasn't the will of man. But it was God. It was a miraculous work of God. Verses 12 and 13 are shocking. They're God-honoring. They're God-glorifying. If we are counted among those who, by God's grace, we once were lovers of darkness, haters of God, but now we've become, I'm not perfect by any means, but I'm growing to hate my sin more and more and love God. We ought to fall on our knees and worship fall on our knees and praise God, have gratitude in our hearts, thank God. Even as we prayed this morning from Colossians chapter 1, give us a full knowledge of this. Not that we know it intellectually, but that we're experiencing this and the, the fullness of it and walking in it so that we can please you and honor you and live faithfully to your work and your purposes in my life because you did this, not me. Verse 12 and 13 should make us shocked, and yet thankful to those who did receive him. How would anybody receive him? God. And this is going to get fleshed out a little bit more when we get to John chapter 3, like the mechanics of this, so bear with us. How did one who didn't receive him now receive him? God did this because he is merciful and kind and gracious. And beloved, here's the the thing. I know it's in the back of your mind. 
And we're going to struggle with it until the day we're face to face with him. And we'll probably spend all eternity. He doesn't do this to everybody. Nobody deserves it. Right? Nobody can claim, God, you are unfair. You changed this person's heart, but you didn't change this person's heart. No, no, God's not, nobody deserves it. What is grace? Is grace owed to anybody? It's undeserved favor. So to some, God gives grace. To others, he gives justice. The wages of your sin, you rejected the light, is death. The wages of sin is death, eternity in hell. Who gets treated unfairly? One gets justice. Isn't that what we want from the court system? Don't we call a judge on the bench? We want justice. Do what's right. Well, to the one that, whose heart God doesn't change, he, he just simply does what's right. The wages of sin is death. And then in the hearts of others, he gives grace. And I'm not standing here saying, man, I get it. I understand it. I'm comfortable with it. I'm just simply saying that's what it is. And God's not unfaithful in doing so. And all I know is if by God's grace, I've been given a new heart, holy smokes. Fall down and worship. Do not, as American Christianity is, puff your chest up. Oh, I did. I've done this. I've done great. It is all God. Be humble. Be worshipful. Be thankful. We ought to be some of the most humble people walking the planet. Some of the nicest, some of the kindest, some of the most loving, some of the most merciful. Because God has shown this mercy to us. People ought to be looking at us differently, say, this person's different. I can't explain it. I don't know why. And if they come and ask us, I'll be glad to explain why. Because God has done a work, and apart from him, I promise you, I am a scoundrel. I mean, think about the worst people. Go to Netflix, watch those miniseries on these criminals. I kind of, I'm fascinated by them. And as I watch them, I think, you know what? There's no reason that's not me. And I mean that sincerely. Y'all watch those things on Netflix? And it's like, good gracious, how horrific. And then I'm reminded, but for the grace of God, I've got those very things in me. Why is there not a Netflix series about this guy and some horrendous things he's done? It's but God. How does one go from darkness to light? It's God. He opens our eyes to see who he is. Who we are apart from him and the danger we're in if we don't repent. And then he gives us a heart. To repent, to see the beauty of Christ and say, why am I loving these things? When that beautiful Christ, that soul satisfying Christ, everything that those fanatics, I hear them talking about, I see it. And I want him. That's the work of God. There's a lot more to be said about the new birth. And like I said, we will get there. John's point here in the prologue is to lay some foundation that he's going to continue to build on. So if this raises questions in your mind, I promise you I've got them too. And John anticipates them. We're going to come back to them. We're going to be back on this again. But his point here, this is the work of God. I, we have to end here. Have you been born of God? American Christianity today is so much of I've done this, I've done that. The question is, have you been born again are you an object of mercy do you sense in your own soul a sense of wretchedness and sinfulness sinfulness you once loved but now i'm still battling i still struggle with it but i don't want to it's a battle 
but my desire is to be holy like Christ is holy. Do you desire holiness? Do you recognize that you've been changed? Could you look at a spouse or go to your parents or say, think about who I used to be. Do you sense a change in me? Because that's the objective reality of the new birth. You will be changed. And for some of us, especially if you grew up in a Christian home, the change is not so much from really, really bad to really, really good. It's from religious. Did you know you need to repent of religion? Because religion is not Jesus. Jesus is all. One of the great stories of Christian history, and we close with this, is George Whitfield. Whitfield, you maybe heard his name, one of the great uh, instigators of the Great Awakening. Um, was a, an evangelist who drew thousands in his public ministry. And then somewhere, he was already in public ministry, he was handed a book written by Henry Skugel, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. And that book lays out true religion is not church attendance, it's not all these, true religion is just what the book says, the life of God in the soul of a man. God changing that heart, giving his heart to man. And after reading that book, Whitfield realized he was still lost. Here he is an evangelist preaching the gospel, but he realized it was an external. It wasn't real. And he repented. God opened his eyes through that book to see who God is, to see who he is, to see who Christ is. And from that point on forward, he continued in gospel ministry, but he came very God-centered in his gospel presentation. Where are you this morning? Are you God-centered in your love for him, in your walk with him, in your understanding of your salvation? If you're not, you're robbing him, robbing him of glory. Would you repent of that? If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, if you hear this and you recognize I'm religious, I've got the pedigree, I've got all, I don't want to go to hell when I die, but this life that you're describing I don't have, please do not picture God up here dangling it like a carrot saying, I may or may not give it to you. The fact you're here this morning means that God is at work. And God is already about the business of doing a work in your soul. You cry out to God. God, give me what only you can do. Give me this heart. I beg, I plead, and I will not stop begging until you do. I promise you, God's not playing games with your heart. He is at work. And that's why we're here this morning.